That word Emmanuel is used only two times in the entire Bible, and it's found, both times are found in the book of Isaiah. Let me read the first time it is mentioned. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. That was written 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years. That's what I love about Christianity, is you have to deal with the historical facts, and you have to come up with, there's either a bunch of liars, a bunch of liars a long time ago that made up something and it just happened to work out, or you have to come up and fall on your knees and say, this God, this God that the Bible is talking about, that the, the God that the Bible is prophesying about, is re- really came in flesh, incarnate deity. And my goal tonight, I think a lot of us might have many different goals. Maybe you wanted to come and hold a candle and... Uh, drop uh, wax on the YMCA's floor. And maybe you came here wanting some quiet hymns to sing before your family tradition or, or something like that. But my hope and my goal for you is to leave here knowing, knowing who God is. Knowing that God can be with you too. Because think about it, if God is really with you, that has to change everything about your life. It has to change absolutely everything. If the God of the Bible, the master, the savior, the friend, the father, the refuge, the strength, the power is actually with you, fighting for you, and actually working all things out for your good, yes, even your suffering, yes, even your loss, yes, even your pain, yes, even your disease, you can know this God. You can know this God, as the psalmist said in Psalm 23, verse 4, that, yea, though I've walked through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Is it possible for you to know God this way? That's my hope, is that you would leave here through the counsel of the word of God, knowing that Emmanuel can be with you as well. And so Isaiah chapter 9, which is where we're going to be tonight, real briefly, I'm just going to highlight two verses Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 starts out like this. And it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of darkness, remember of that, remember that, on them has light shone. What kind of darkness were these people in? What kind of darkness were they, they in? Well, at the time they were in economic darkness. They were a nation that was completely under distress. They had uncertainty about their future. They were unsafe. They felt abandoned by God. Maybe some of you feel that way today, friends. Maybe this is the first Christmas where your health, your, your job, uh, maybe uh, is, is something that is uncertain in your life. Maybe this is the first Christmas where your future is uncertain. Maybe this is the first Christmas that you have actually had to taste and deal with the reality of death. Maybe this is the first Christmas that you notice that there's not someone around the Christmas dinner table with you. And if so, if so, you need to understand what the dark, you understand what the darkness of fear really, really is. And I want to point out something. What if, what if the problems in your life stemmed from or at least were intensified by the feeling that you were not closely connected with God? What if the problems in your life stemmed from or at least were intensified by feeling that you were separated from God? There seems to be this overwhelming collective sense that we don't measure up 
to God. That there, there's something in this life that we got to keep on striving, keep on working for, just to act like we're someone. If you are with us last week, just last Sunday, I gave a quote from Madonna, which doesn't typically happen at Redeemer Church. You're like, oh, okay, I know what type of church this is now. Here we go. What's this guy getting into? But she points out something really, really profound. And let me just read it to you. It says this. I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy in my heart. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past it for a spell to discover that, uh, discover myself as a special human being, and then I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear that I am mediocre, and that's always pushing me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Madonna. In Genesis chapter 3, talks about this same thing that Madonna is trying to communicate to us tonight. She's, in Genesis chapter 3, we sense that from our, we understand that from our sin, there was this overwhelming sense of nakedness that came. And so the very first thing that came with our nakedness is we try to cover ourselves. We try to, because we were unworthy, we had to show and put something before us to say, God, am I okay now? So they sewed fig leaves together. And they were trying to earn the approval of God. And they didn't have to use, they they used to not have to have, uh, try to earn this approval. You want to know why? Because they, in the garden, Genesis chapter 2, you know what they had? They were clothed in the love and acceptance of God before sin entered into the world. But then they were stripped of all of this love and acceptance from the Father because of their sin. And then came flooding in this overwhelming sense that they were not enough, that they were not lovely, that they were mediocre, that they needed help. And that was part of the curse of the knowledge of good and evil. So I ask you again, I ask you again, what if all your problems, what if the problem beneath every problem in your life right now stems from a feeling that you are being, that you are separated from God? Blaise Pascal thought so. Blaise Pascal gives a famous quote that you've probably heard before. He says, there is a God-shaped hope hole in every human heart that we constantly try to fill with other stuff. I read an an interesting article about uh, young adults in our cultural moment. This was 35 to about 18. And it said said this. It said, uh, young adults in our generation are terrified to share their convictions with their friends, family, and neighbors because of cancel culture. This young adult generation is petrified from uh, from the reality of not being on the right side of history, and that seems to be our cultural moment. Are you thinking about things the right way? Are you on my side or are you on the other side, right? That's what we see every single time we turn on YouTube, every single time we open up our phones and we get on Instagram or Facebook. What, what meets you there? Is it just cat videos and dude perfect? Or, or is there something else that meets you there whenever you open up your phone? Is it catechism? Is it catechism of the world that says, are you following the right things? Are you on the right side of politics? Are you the right side of COVID? Are you on the right side of current, current events? Are you up to date with a new strand? Are you up to date with mask, um, mask, backs, six feet, 12 feet to gather or not to gather? 
Are, are, are you following the commentator that you're supposed to be following whenever you open up your phone? Are you following Ben Shapiro? Are you following the Young Turks? Are you following Fox? Are you on CNN side? Are you on Tucker Carlson side? Are you with Don Lemon? Are you, are you on Fauci or Dr. Peter McCullough? Are you with Joe Rogan? Are you with Crystal and Salger? Have I hit everyone yet? Have I hit everyone? I think that's all of us. And all these voices do is they reinforce the catechism that is not rooted in the Bible but we're giving our lives to it. And we're giving our lives to just a commentator, one of a million influencers in the wild that we just wanna be like a little bit. This is what we fill our hearts with that can only be filled with God, that can only be filled with God. And the problem is whenever we try to fill it with other things, what happens? We're always left, like maybe I didn't define it this time. Maybe Ben Shapiro doesn't have it, everything. Maybe Don Lemon was wrong about that thing. Maybe Fox and CNN isn't where it's at. Maybe I need to find an alternative media. No, you're always left wanting because the goalposts are always going to change. Politics will always let you down. Your family's going to let you down. Your friends are going to let you down. Everything is ultimately going to let you down. And God knew this, and he made a way when there was no way. He made a way where there was no way. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says this, talking about that child that was to be born. For to us a child was born, just a son was given, and the government which shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Into the dark world that Isaiah's people found themselves in, they had the promise of God the Son. In Romans chapter 5, talks about this, this person being the second Adam, as if there was almost a do-over that was, that was coming. Whenever Adam messed up in the garden, we needed a hero. We needed someone to rescue us. We needed the hope of redemption. And that's what this hope promised us. It promised us a hero, that God would send his very own son to remove the sense of unworthiness, of shame, of guilt, of mediocrity, of nakedness from us all. But this was no ordinary hero. He wasn't born in a castle. He wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. No, he was born to a poor, unwed teenager and placed in a feeding trough. Why was he doing this? Why come this way? Why would he do it like this? Don't you see, friends? He was trying to identify with all of us he was trying to identify with all of us. See, whenever we try to fill up our hearts with all of this stuff, what it does is it makes us all spiritually poor. That means if you're in this room right now and you're just like, man, I was drugged here by my family and now this guy's yelling at me and I don't even know what a, a who Harold is and how to hark it, you know? I don't even know what that means. So, so why am I even here? But we're all on the same playing field. Everyone in here is spiritually poor in need of re redemption, in need of a rescuer. And that's what God said he came to do. He was identifying himself. He says, that's my bride. I'm going to get it. The same way that a husband would take on a bride that has, you name the number, a quarter million dollars worth of student loan debt. If, 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 they, if he loves her, he's going to say, I don't care how much debt you have, you're mine. And he wraps us, wraps us up. And he wraps up his bride. And that's what God has done. That's what God has done. Isaiah goes on to say and explain it even more. He says, surely this God, he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. 
He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement or punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Our sin has separated us from God. It has completely separated us from God. I heard it said this way once that imagine this book represents your sin and imagine my hand represents you. No matter how high you bring it to try to get close to God, the higher you get, you will still be separated by your sin. And you need something. You need something to remove the curse of the sin. And the good news that we see in this passage is that 700 years, let me report that again, 700 years before Jesus had come, he promised that this person was going to take away the sins of the world. He came, he came to take our suffering in our place and to remove that that was separating us from God. Now, now because of him, nothing, nothing remains between me and God because he took my sin. He put it in a tomb, buried it, and it no longer can separate me from God. And what happens in this passage is it helps us understand what our relationship to God can actually be. Our relationship to God, if you believe this message, can be that he is your wonderful counselor. Do you know God this way? Do you understand that Jesus is teaching you the way to life and salvation? He's teaching you the way to, to where human flourishing is supposed to happen through your word? He is the wonderful counselor which means he will walk side by side with you all of your life. No matter what you go through, you are never alone because you have the wonderful counselor side by side carrying you through moment by moment. He doesn't promise that he's going to take you out of pain and suffering. He promises to walk with you through it like a good counselor always does. And he promised to be the mighty God. The mighty God. Do you know God this way? As mighty? You say, yeah, I believe the creation story. You know, he spoke, let there be light, and then all of a sudden light just came into existence. Not, not mighty that way, even though that's really, really mighty. Mighty in a way to where he says, I will take even your deepest, darkest pain and suffering, and I will use it for my glory and for your joy, believe it or not. I will take the deepest, darkest pain. And whenever you say, God, what are you doing? He always says, I'm doing something. I'm doing something. For Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Isn't that amazing that this mighty God is not wasting anything in this life, but he's conforming everything so that we know and become like Jesus, which is ultimately our good. That's for our good. We don't want to be the, our best life. We don't want to live our best life now. We don't want to be rich and all these other things. That is fleeting. You can't take any of that with you whenever you go to the grave, can you? Can you take any of it with you? No, no. The mighty God, the mighty God says, even, even when death comes, even when the cancer comes back, I'm working all things to make you like me, to make you like Jesus. That's why he's doing it. And your suffering is real and it's prominent and I know that. And I'm not trying to belittle it at all. I'm just trying to say, if you don't know why God is putting you through something, I promise you he is putting you through something. You might not even know it till you see him face to face, but he is trustworthy and you can trust his character. Why? Because he's the everlasting father. And this might be where you get a hiccup, right? I think there's probably so many in this room that whenever you see everlasting father, you say, I don't have a good picture of that. 
I don't have a good picture of that. Uh, if God's a father, you don't know what my father did to me, and I don't care. And if that's what you feel like today, if that's what you feel like today, I promise you there is another picture of a father that I want you to see. Bo Jackson said this, and I thought was really profound. He said, um, you know who Bo Jackson is, like the greatest athlete of my dad's generation who played um, Major League Baseball, all-star Major League Baseball and an all-star in, um, in, a, in the NFL. Amazing, amazing athlete. He said, I would give every speck of my athletic ability just to have my dad come to one of my games. And some of you know the pain of that. Some of you know the pain of that, but the everlasting father is God with us. God with us. The Emmanuel came to wipe away all of the father pain that is in this room. God is the everlasting father, the father that our fathers are supposed to point us to. Shane and Shane wrote an amazing, amazing song um, that, that he wrote to his daughter, and I just want to read this to you. And this is what it says. I, I wish I could be your everything, be the one who gives you all the things you need. Sometimes I'm going to let you down, but there is a way if you just believe. He'll be your hero like he's always been for me. Daughter, Jesus is all you need. Jesus is the father that we are all looking for. He's the greater father that doesn't just support us in the ways that we want to be supported. He's the father that would give ultimately his life for us because he hated the idea of us being separated from him. Jesus didn't just go to our ball games, fix our flat tires, build a trampoline, and fix our, teach our kids how to ride a bike. Jesus came to remove all the pain from our father pain and to show us, and to show us what a real father is supposed to be. Filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And in that, we see that he can also be the prince of peace. You see, in our humanity right now, in our cultural moment, peace is the number one thing we're lacking, is it not? Anxiety, depression, fear, sleeplessness is at a 60-year all-time high. 60 year. The number one uh, prescription drug is to either help us sleep or to help cure our anxiety in America right now. And I'm not casting shame on any of that. I'm just saying these are trying times. These are trying times in our cultural moment. And what we do to try to fill our heart with, these, uh, with the emptiness of our anxiety and depression and fear and sleeplessness is not, a lot of times we will turn to a substance or we will turn to each other and say, help, fix me fix me. And Redeemer, what I have recognized in my years as a pastor is that horizontal disconnect between us always is a byproduct of our vertical disconnect between us and God. You see, none of us can fill the shoes that God is supposed to fill for us. Absolutely none of us can. What we need, what we need is right relationship with God. We need to understand Emmanuel, God with us. We need to behold him rightly, and only then can we go out and serve those around us appropriately. Because of this hole, this hole that is only shaped with God and God himself. You see, our souls will always be restless until we find our ultimate rest in God. And Isaiah tells us that one day, this child is going to restore all things. But first, he had to reconcile me and him. He had to remove my sin. He had to clothe my nakedness. He had to restore our relationship. And he was the light that was brought into this darkness. He was the light that was brought into this darkness. One more thing I want to point out before we close. 
Isaiah 9, verse 2. Let me read it again. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness. Do you know the land of deep darkness is actually the exact same, the exact same word that is found in Psalm 23, verse 4. This says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The valley of the shadow of the death in land of deep darkness is the exact same word in Hebrew. And what's funny is this, is Stephanie and I, who I think just left, (laughs) and is taking care of a kid. Stephanie and I have had our fair share of the valley of the shadow of death these last seven weeks. We've been in the land of deep darkness. We have. And what's been wild as I've looked to scripture to comfort my grieving soul is I read verse 23 and I'm like, what is it talking about? The valley of the shadow of death? And then it hit me. Shadows aren't real. Shadows can't hurt me. Shadows can't hurt you. If I'm driving down 287 in my minivan, and uh, I get hit by the shadow of an 18-wheeler on the other side, and it hits my car. Am I okay? Yes, I'm okay. The shadow, the shadow hit me. I'd much rather be hit by the shadow than by the actual truck. But then the Lord revealed this to me. In the valley of the shadow of death, we have to understand that Jesus, what he ultimately came and what Isaiah is preaching to us here today, is this, that Jesus took the truck took the truck of the death that we deserve so that all that is left for us is the shadow. And so I can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil because Jesus took the brunt of it. Jesus took the thing that I actually deserve. Jesus took the truck so that all that is left for me is the shadow. He took the condemnation. He took the shame. He took the pain. He took the guilt. He took the wrath of God. He took the ultimate death. On the cross, did you know that there was actual, real darkness for three hours? As if heaven had turned his face away from the earth. And in that, he drank all of the darkness and death that you and I should have got. So that all that is left for me and for you is light. The light of God. So that we can walk with him and enjoy him. That's my hope for you this Christmas season. You see... There's two groups of people in this room. There's two groups of people everywhere. (laughs) And there's a group of people that have received the good news that Jesus took the truck of death so that all that's left for them is the shadow and they can live in the light of God while he sat in the darkness in our place. And then there's those that are still in their sin, still in darkness. In all the talk of my hope talk, they've never experienced the fullness of their heart. And whenever John is given his recollection of the Christmas story in chapter one, he says this, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, Jesus lived the perfect life that you should have lived and that I should have lived, but we couldn't. He died the death that you and I should have died He died the death that you and I deserved to die. He took the darkness 
so that all that was left for us was the light. He got to know God as the judge so that all that we can know him as is everlasting father. He died a traitor's death so that we could be welcomed to his table as a friend. How do you receive this? You receive it the same way you receive any gift at Christmas, by grace and with gratitude. And you just say, thank you. You notice in verse 6 of Isaiah, it says, unto us a son was given. He was given to us. Any of you parents in here, are you going to make your kids earn their Christmas presents? Are you going to say, I want a year's worth of obedience before you open this next gift? No, No one does this. How do we give our gifts to our children? We say, I just want you to see it and open it and enjoy it and know that dad and mom, mostly mom, are giving you this because we love you. And Jesus is the gift to us because God loves you. He absolutely loves you. Stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to say at this end of year, whenever there's uh, New Year's resolutions right around the corner, he's like, okay, that guy, he, he was really passionate about that sermon thing during Christmas. Maybe next year uh, I'll, I'll go to church more. Or maybe next year I'll pray more. Or maybe next year I'll read the Bible more. Stop that. Stop that. Receive the gift of God. Receive the gift of God. Romans 4, 5 says to the one who does not work, but trust in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith Her faith is counted to them as righteousness. Do you know God this way? Have you beheld him? Have you received his gift this Christmas time? That's all I want for you. That is all I want for you. And I don't want you to leave here without saying, okay, okay, another one of those Jesus sermons. Guess what? All sermons are about Jesus or they're not really sermons. (laughs) Listen, this Christmas, you might come here with a lot of expectations, but leave here, leave here with beholding the grace and the power and the friendship of God as displayed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You might be in this room and you might be saying, you know what? I've heard this before, Cody. It doesn't work on me. I'm gospel proof. I'm preaching proof. You can't, you know, I'm unbreakable. You can't, you can't get me. Well, okay, I respect that. I respect the fact that you would even come here and, and honor your family in this way. And so I, I ask you to do this. I ask you to do this. Read the Gospel of John. Read the Gospel of John um, over the break until the, the end of the year. There's only, 800, there's only 837 verses in the Gospel of John. That's like four days of Instagram scrolling. Okay, you can do it. You can do it. Read it. Read it and discern and ask God if he's there. I want to behold you, God. Reveal yourself to me through your word. That's my challenge to you. And to everyone else in this room that um, loves Jesus and wants to walk with him day in and day out. Are you beholding him this way? Are you reminded? Are you reminded that Uh, Jesus took the truck of God's wrath so that all that is left for you is shadow, that all your fear, all your anxiety, everything that is holding you back right now, that's just a shadow. It's not real. You have Emmanuel. You have God with us. Walk with him, delight in him, and live it out. Amen? Will you pray with me?